millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. My whakarongomai kita altai whenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. Today, why organisers of farmers' markets are being asked to shout from the rooftops. We take a trip to Waiuku and learn how a knife-making business has turned into a family affair after 40 years. Later on, the versatility of wool celebrated at the New Zealand Agricultural Show this month. But first to a roundup of the week's rural news with RNZ rural reporter Monique Steele. And Monique, let's just first run through who's heading up the various primary industry portfolios after the formation of the coalition government this week. Hello, Sally. Yes, Todd McClay, who has been national spokesperson for agriculture since March, will take on the agriculture portfolio. And he'll also be the Minister of Forestry, Hunting and Fishing and Minister for Trade. Mr McClay, who doesn't come from a farming background, well, he'll be backed by three associate ministers of agriculture. New Zealand First's Mark Patterson is the Minister for Rural Communities, while ex-Shane Jones takes up the Ocean and Fisheries and Regional development. National's Nicola Grigg will focus on horticulture. Now ACT's Andrew Hoggard, who's the former Fed Farmers president, has a chunky portfolio of ag jobs. Uh, yes, he'll be busy. He will be the new Minister for Biosecurity, Food Safety and Associate Agriculture Minister focusing on animal welfare and the environment. Now, this has been the talk of the Waikato this week. Hundreds of farmers have been affected by failed semen for their dairy herds. Yes, well, this is to do with products from the Agritech and Herd Improvement Co-op, LIC. Hundreds of farmers have been refunded after batches of its sire semen failed to result in good pregnancy rates. Routine testing in October found issue with 13 batches of the co-op's semen straws, which had been used on 921 herds across the country. Federated Farmers Dairy Chair Richard McIntyre, who is one of the affected farmers, says the impact will vary from farmers. To farm. Farmers like me that only had a few straws, you know, it won't, won't make a huge impact. There will still be an impact. But then there are farmers that had planned synchrony programs where they um, synchronised their cows and so that a whole lot cycled on those days, like, you know, particularly if it was the start of their mating period. And um, and then they had a whole lot of straws that weren't up to scratch used. And, and a, lot, a lot of cows didn't get in calf as a result of it. So they will be hugely affected by it. You know, they've spent a whole lot of money to try and ensure that cows cycle early and get in calf early and they've had the opposite of that. So so they will be pretty frustrated by the situation. Mr McIntyre says LAC picked up on the issue during routine testing and emailed farmers pretty quickly. So what has LIC had to say? Well, LIC spokesperson Malcolm Ellis says the batches which were affected passed early quality control checks before failing the day three test. He says a biological breakdown occurred within the straws which impacted the semen survival across the three days of insemination. The cause of this is still being investigated. But Mr Ellis says LIC has fully refunded the cost of the semen straws and insemination. Now things are on the up for kiwi fruit growers. Yes, well, good news at last. Zespri has released record forecast prices for the upcoming season. Green returns per tray are at a record level of $9, compared to last season's final payout of $5.78. Sun Gold is forecast to bring in $12.35 a tray, and the new red variety is forecast at just over $26 a tray. Both are up on last season. Chief Executive Dan Matheson says it's been very nice to tell growers some positive news after a couple of tough years. 
I think working really hard on improving quality after you know a, a tough quality period through 2022 season and on the back of quality improving we've seen very strong demand for our kiwi fruit going into the 2023 year we also had a lot lower volumes this year which meant we've been able to exit the market earlier and that's helped to avoid some of the end of season quality costs that we can quite often get when we sell too late. Now demand is also strong for oysters in international markets. Yes, so much so that Marlborough oysters can't keep up with demand and are looking to expand. Aaron Pannell and his wife Debbie started the company in the Sounds back in 2011 and are now producing between two and 300,000 dozen oysters a year. He says they want to triple or even quadruple production in the next few years. One of the things for us has been spat supply over the years. So we've actually just um, built our own nursery so we can supply directly into our farms. So we'll, we'll be able to scale up now that we've got a good, good supply. It's a, it's a little bit like having a, a supply of seed in a way if you're, if you're pastoral farming. Also we'll, we'll be able to supply other uh, growers in New Zealand as well. And Monique, you have some news from the local medicinal cannabis industry. Yes, we spoke to Southern Medicinal, a hemp processing company which has partnered up with farms in Southland. It's converted Southland's old Matilda paper mill into a medicinal cannabis and hemp growing, testing and processing facility. This is off the back of the legislation of medicinal cannabis in 2020. Since then, prescriptions have grown from about 1,000 a month to over 8,000. But Southern Medicinal's founder, Greg Marshall, says they can't actually sell it anything yet. We peaked uh, operating nine different sites. Right now we're down, we're currently operating three. The reason we've uh, put sites into hibernation is that we, the rules in New Zealand have been uh, very difficult to navigate and even though there's massive growth going on, we simply can't access the market until the rules are changed. Greg Marshall says the industry is in utter disarray and many businesses are close to going under. He says changes have been promised to the scheme, but everyone's waiting for the new government to look at them. And on the weather front, what's happened to that hot, dry stuff we've been expecting? Well, weather watch forecaster Philip Duncan says it's been slow to spark. He says while conditions are good for grass growth now, coming into summer, El Nino will hit its peak. There is no crystal ball that can lock in anything, but our long-range data from IBM, which isn't perfect, but it is the most accurate in the world, does paint a picture of New Zealand starting to dry out more through December and January. So it's worth keeping that in mind, even if at the moment you've got some rain relief. That's great. Thanks very much, Monique. You're listening to Country Life on RNZ National, 101 FM. Now to our guest this week, who's been in Rome mingling with organisers of farmers' markets from Ghana to Alaska. I'm John O'Walker. I'm a vendor at the Waikato Farmers Markets, and I'm a chair of Farmers Market New Zealand. This year, John, you went to the World Farmers Market Coalition in Rome. Tell us a little bit about why you went. Yes, I did. It was really exciting. It was first uh, time of going abroad to meet with other Farmers Market Association representatives. The coalition's fairly new. It was formed in July two years ago, 2021, as a way of getting Farmers Market Associations around the world to work together and build a community of, of best practice. Um, the coalition was funded initially by... Um, the FAO, which is part of the United Nations, who, who recognise that the industrial food system is, is failing in many ways, particularly with recent extreme climatic events, and the role of farmers' markets has got a, a, a well, it's a more important role to play in, in the future, or will have. And, and Italy's leading the, the way in this. Their union of farmers got together behind local markets, and they've developed a... Um, a chain of about 1,200 farmers' markets uh, throughout Italy. I mean, there's more of a culture of markets there, but they're increasingly relying on them, those markets, to sell uh, local food to local people. Now, what else did you learn? Did did you sort of bring back any ideas or trends around farmers' markets from Rome for farmers' markets here? Yeah, the, the most overwhelming thing, initially it was the fact that I turned up and there were about 100 people from 50 or 60 different 
farmers market associations from from the places you'd expect, like Canada, USA, um, and Europe, but also from more extreme places like Ghana and Liberia and Ecuador and Alaska. I didn't even know they had farmers markets in Alaska. But uh, the, the, the initially, the, the overwhelming thing was that everyone does the same thing. We all meet on the weekend, put up a gazebo and sell food that's been produced locally and sell it to local people. So straight away, we all felt like a big family and we all do the same thing. And, and so many of the problems are shared. The thing that I came away with more than anything else was that farmers' markets are important. They are not just a fun thing where a few people turn up to sell a bit of nice food at the weekend. It's, it's a way that people can eat more locally, more sustainably, tastier food, but also food that's going to be there for sale every week and not be uh, affected so much by these uh, extreme climatic events. What lessons did you learn about how other markets dealt with the pandemic? We didn't do so well there. Most farmers markets uh, around the world were, were seen or are seen as essential services because they sell food and not, they're not just a general market where you might buy craft and, and tourist stuff and, and ready-to-eat food. So most farmers markets were allowed to trade through the pandemic. Um, it makes a lot of sense knowing what we know now that um, outside spaces are much safer. So most farmers markets were allowed to trade, but we weren't. And the frustration was not being able to um, even get to speak to someone um, any higher than sort of MPI um, who were very helpful, but we could never get near any sort of government ministers uh, to, to discuss this issue. Did you sort of get any tips on how those other markets overseas handled the pandemic around dealing with crowds, for instance? Yeah, it was a lot of work. A lot more staff were involved, spacing stalls out a bit more, uh, implementing sort of one-way systems through the market counting people to make sure the crowds didn't develop. Uh, so there's a lot more effort and money spent on, on staff and management, but they work. Now, there is a trend, it seems, for more farmers selling online direct to their consumers. How are farmers' markets overseas dealing with that trend? Yeah, they are, and, and sometimes it's a good idea because a lot of farmers don't have very good people skills. They, they're brilliant at growing food, but you stand them behind a, a table piled high with food and, and ask them to sell it to the public and, and, and they really struggle. They get nervous uh, and they're not good at communicating. So it's easier to sell it online. But what you lose um, from that, two, two problems arise. People get really lazy. They do all their shopping from, from their phone or their, their tablet. And you lose that community benefit of a market where people gather, where they can talk to the person who's grown the food because of course every other person's got allergies and, and following special diets these days so so that they they can talk to the person who's produced it to, to make sure they're happy with what they're buying and that helps to strengthen that link between urban and, and rural communities that's not such a big problem in New Zealand tiny population most people have, have got relatives that are still farming but in other parts of the world, which are much more urbanised, that's really, really important. So that is a worrying trend, I think. I personally would like to firebomb every delivery truck that I see on the road and, and get people to actually go shopping, and preferably go shopping at a, for local food and support local businesses. What place do you think farmers' markets have in fixing the food system? Because we heard the Director General of the United Nations talking about global food systems being broken. That's right, yeah, that was a really powerful statement. In this country, we certainly can't feed the whole population at the moment with the farmers' markets that we have, but we can feed some of the population. So at the moment, I, I think the role of farmers' markets is uh, supportive, but I would love to see more farmers' markets. I think every town should have a, a, a farmers' market, and, and the bigger places should have several farmers' markets where people do a, a significant part of their weekly shop and then just bulk up with the stuff that they can't get at the farmer's market, sort of imported foods and uh, dried foods and, and that type of thing at a supermarket. I think we, we need both in the system, but I would like to see farmer's markets play a much more important role and people to value the quality of the food 
and realise that the, the price is, is much better at the farmer's market as well because you're buying direct from the producer and it's fresher and tastier. So I think we need both, but I think farmer's markets need to be taken more seriously, particularly by the government, and I think they need to understand that a farmer's market is a market that only sells food and it's sold by the producer and it's not a general market or a craft market or anything like that because there's a huge difference. It's an outdoor local supermarket, really. Sally was talking there to John O'Walker, who's the chair of Farmers Markets New Zealand. At the base of Afitu Peninsula, 20 minutes west of Pukekohe, and just 12 kilometres north of the Waikato River mouth, is the rural town of Waiuku. And it's here, tucked away on a quiet road surrounded by farmland, that Leah Tebbett met the people behind Sford Knives. I'm quite lucky that I'm making knives in the, in the years that I, I started making knives. That's Brian Baker, a Waiuku-based cutler. And over the years I'd collected in the region of about 120 tonne of steel uh, and I was independent of the importers of steel and that's how I built my business because um, I wasn't constantly trying to fight price increases. We've actually been recognised as one of the, probably the only company in Australia or New Zealand in the modern era to start up a cutlery company and be successful at it. There's lots of small guys, one-man operations working from home, but nothing on the scale that we got here. Brian's been making knives under this Ford brand for 40 years and what started as a shed about 20 minutes from Pukekohe. When he started, he says 99% of knives were made with stainless steel, However, Brian uses carbon steel, stating it stays sharper for longer. So we sit down for a chat about how this all began. It started really uh, when I was on a farm as a, as a 13-year-old. Behind the, in the, in the garage, I found a bayonet, a World War II bayonet. I was so excited as a young boy coming from, the, from Auckland to out the back of nowhere to find this bayonet. And when I got home from school, I uh, went to get it and my father had given it away. A few months or years later, I brought a, a little pocket knife to carry around the farm, and uh, I lost that in the paddock. And I spent weeks looking for it, and I couldn't find it. So, fast forward to when I was at uh, Waiuku College, the metalwork teacher did a project where the boys would make uh, a knife in, in metalworking class, and then, along with two or three other knives, that knife got stolen. <laughs> so then. I did some night classes and then I sort of got into, into it that way, so that's how I sort of started. It was started by, you know, the, the, the first three knives that I had were being lost or stolen. Yeah, yeah, by stroke of bad luck, really. Yeah, so <laughs> that's sort of how I got going and it then sort of developed from there. Wow, so how many years later till you started the business? Well, I was probably 18 when I did the night school, so about 19 or 20 when I was uh, that age I started it. I'd been going for about four years in this, that shed there, you can see that Skyline Garage, mm. and uh, a guy in Hamilton by the name of Bohumil Nabeski, uh, who was a Czechoslovakian-born knife maker, he, he heard about me and he came out to see me, and he, he then offered to teach me, and so then I learnt the business side of it, and also the, the, the side of how to make knives on a manufacturing basis, as opposed to making them in a shed, you know, one at a time. So uh, that was a big boost to my business, and for, for many years I'd go down and see him and stay in Hamilton and, and learn the, the, the trade off him. So I was sort of trained by him. That's how it started. Developed a pocket knife in 1995 and um, we sold tens of thousands of them since. It's called a peasant knife. And we've branched out into chef's knives and uh, kitchen knives and all that type of thing as well. So I thought of the name Sford because we use Swedish steel. When I first started, I went to see a patent attorney and I asked him if I could register the name Sword, and he said, well, there's a company called Wilkinson Sword, which is spelt with a W, and he said, they might object to you. So I said, well, I'll, I'll include it with my name, Brian Baker, I'll be Baker, and I changed the styling of the word Sword and put an umlau above the O, which is two dots, and I never had any problems. And so uh, now that the brand has established itself, it's no, there's no confusion on what it is. And when we were in there before, I saw antlers or a type of antler being used for the handles. Is there a variety of different handles available depending on what knife? Yes, well, we source antler, New Zealand uh, red, red deer antler. Uh, we source uh, mahogany wood from overseas. We, we source uh, ash. 
walnut. Um, we've even made knives with uh, whalebone handles, wow. uh, utilising um, rare gemstones and sterling silver. So we've got those collectors' knives as well. We've made knives with um, ebony, power shell inlay as well. You know, South Island power shell, and we use a lot of brass for the furniture of the knives as well. Yeah, so we, stuff is coming from all around and is in, sto is in stock here for us to draw on. So we have a lot of a great stock of more materials from all around the world. Brian's story in knife making is far from over. Now his 24-year-old daughter Kelsey has joined the fold. I think I've been working here on and off for maybe like a total of four or five years maybe. And I guess I've always been like a hands-on kind of worker and I guess the creativity of like making knives because I sew clothes and so that's what I thought I was going to do out of high school. I went to uni for about half a semester and um, realised that education system, I didn't want to get back into it. I just ended up coming to work for dad. Like I was always around the workshop when I was a kid and stuff and just like making little projects. It was something I really enjoyed doing and I was actually pretty good at, so <laughs> it was pretty enjoyable. I guess it's quite a relaxing thing to do, like working on something so closely and paying such attention to like the detail and I guess at the end like seeing the final product and then it going off to a customer and you're like they're going to enjoy it so much so it's like a lot of reward and like what we make and stuff. What part of the process do you enjoy most and are you in all parts of it with the handles and the blades and and everything else that goes into <laughs> making a knife. Yeah, I am. So I, I make the knives and sometimes I'm sewing up the leather sheaths and um, sometimes I'm doing office work. So it's nice. <laughs> so I get to do a little bit of every stage of the process. Um, but I definitely enjoy making the knives. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess some of the custom knives is quite fun. Um, so I made some, like, wooden mosaic handle kitchen knives and just like those random custom ones that give you a sense of creativity, yeah. And Kelsey's not the only one. Her older sister, Madison, has also joined the ranks. So I didn't either see myself going into it at all. Um, my background is engineering. I did mechanical engineering at Auckland and thought I would always go into aviation. Um, thought that was my thing and then following COVID it was clearly not the right <laughs> career right, path to be yeah. in. Um, so me and dad had a chat one day during lockdown um, and he started to come up with the design and idea for these very sort of modern, sleek, minimalistic kitchen knives and I've sort of always had an interest in sustainability and um, ensuring that like the products that I'm choosing for myself personally are sourced from sustainable sources and trusted brands. Um, so I guess those two kind of ideas combined created what's news now. Then I think a lot of the other businesses out there have sort of never really given it much of a modern modern spin and modern take um, and brought the business or the brand into the, the 21st century. So. How do you make it modern? Is it that sustainability focus or does it go down to the yeah. design as well? I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of the kind of kitchen knives you see when you go into somewhere like Briscoe's or um, the sort of usual knife, knife stores is the same, very much the same sort of look um, with the sort of rounded handle but I think the very, I guess you'd say ge geometrical almost sort of shaped handle give it a very sleek look and then I think the values and stuff behind the brand as well so sustainability is obviously coming to the forefront in every single business. How do you guys enjoy all working together? <laughs> well I'm not here all the time so I have an, another part-time job on the side so these two are always together. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's good I enjoy it. Obviously some days if it's your family you can be in a bit of a grump with them but that's just the way family is. Um, but generally... <laughs> no, we work very well together. It's, uh, we don't have any, any fallouts or anything like that. It's, uh, it goes quite smoothly. End of year. Did you envision as a 19 year old young boy that you would have your daughters working for you and however many years later? <laughs> no, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have foreseen that. 
even I mean I don't know ten years ago would you have thought they would have come into yeah well it's good I think it's good to have a family business um, because you know it's it, to me it's it's a, it's a better thing than having a family business and having having a public company you know it, 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 you look at some of the businesses that I admire around the world like Swarovski you know those family businesses in Europe and they, they pass it down from generation to generation uh, there's a number of companies even BMW I believe is a family business um, I just like the idea of a family business it, it, you're working towards something together yeah, a united front I guess is yeah. the way of looking at it yeah no it is really nice and yeah I guess you take it for granted sometimes but it's definitely nice to be working with your family and see them more often than you yeah. usually would as well with all that being said, we decide to meander through the many alleys that have turned the original shed into a much larger workshop. There's an old shipping container behind us. Is that just full of all the bits and pieces? Yes, that's actually built into the workshop and it's, it, it's a storeroom for our blanks and some of the raw materials, so it just works well. And uh, There was a film on TV a, a while ago about an Indian slum called Derby mm. and it's it sort of that sort of this doesn't remind me of that but <laughs> it's uh it's that when you're building on building and you're sort of like adding to things it's, it's it gets a sort of an organic type of feel yeah very authentic very authentic and it's it's um it's got a more of a warmth and a character than say a tilt slab building which is just a square box it's it's sort of lots of nooks and crannies around here and even I lose things, I put things together, I can't find them. <laughs> I think it, um, it also shows like a bit of the evolution as well, like what Dad was saying before about starting in the shed there and then built the front bit to expand it and then built that way to expand it and then another space. So, yeah, it showed the evolution over 40 years or so of Sford operating. Yeah. How many people make Sford work? I initially thought it would have just been you three working away, but coming here I've realised it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah, there's about eight people, seven or eight people uh, come here every day. It's grown over the years. When I first started, when I was 19 or 20, I had one guy working for me. So even back then I had someone, you know, employed. I, I suppose to make a business pay for itself, you can't really do it by yourself. Uh, you've got to have people working for you and with you and all working towards a goal. And It's like a sort of a Swiss watch. There's many parts, moving parts to it. It, it, it just ticks along and that's what I like about it. What's the future for Sford and I guess for, for your business? Are they crossing over and you're bringing more sustainability into the fold or are you looking at passing it down to you and, <laughs> and you're taking the full reins? What, what's your idea or is that too far away yet to even think about? Yeah, just, I just take it day to day. Um, it would be good to be more sustainable in the future and pass it down because uh, I'm not going to be here forever, no one is. So yeah, I, I don't really... Um, I can't predict the future, all I can do is just try and do the best what I'm doing at the moment. Brian Baker, master cutler of Sword Knives, ending Leah Tabbitt's story. And you also heard from Brian's daughters, Kelsey and Madison. People might not know that milking cows isn't as bad as you think. Um, you should probably give it a try one day. Country Life, 101 FM. There was a big focus on wool at the New Zealand Agricultural Show this month. It was the 160th show and the largest ANP show in Aotearoa. Cosmo Kentish Barnes went along to meet some of the good people who are proud to be involved with the sheep and wool sector. First up, he's with the show's shearing and wool handling chair, James Dwyer. So we're standing in the Lister Shearing Pavilion at the moment and we are just starting to sort up our Corridale hoggets that have travelled down from Marble Point Station with a lot of support from Matt and Sarah Black this morning. And we have to keep them separated into two separate lines. Uh, we've got the sheep that have been prepared for the wool handlers and our wool handlers do a lot of grading and they sort a lot more of the wool so they just have a small buttonhole or a small crutch around their tail. And the shearers competition sheep, they have a much bigger crutch and Half of the belly is removed so that at high speed there's less chance of any of the breeding capabilities being damaged. Gosh, so quite a lot of preparation has gone into these sheep. Yes, yes, um, and a massive amount of work from 
Matt Black. He had to keep the sheep in and around the yards for four days last week so we could get them crutched up for our working bee, which was an absolutely monstrous effort. So yeah, we are very lucky uh, that he supplies his Corridale hoggets to come down for our New Zealand Corridale shearing champs. It's a national title. Uh, Canterbury traditionally has always had the Corridale breed, but with the change of farming practices over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, there has been a, a large reduction in the number of Corridale farms or large-scale Corridale farms. And to find someone that has such a large amount of hoggets, we select from 1,200 hoggets to get the number down to 900 to come in for our two days of competition. How would you describe these sheep? What are their attributes? So the Corridale has always been referred to as a dual-purpose breed. It gives you a very high-quality mid-micron fleece. So it's not as fine as the Merino, but it's a lot finer than your traditional Romneys. And it is still able, while giving you a, a nice mid-micron fleece, it's still producing a very solid carcass for the lamb to go off to market. Yes. Are you a farmer? No, I'm not. Sheep shearer by trade. So um, that's me most of the year round. I sort of 10 or 11 months a year I'm shearing sheep, mainly on Banks Peninsula. So it's um, come in onto the flat from the hills to put on a show and... By the time this week's over, I'll be looking forward to going back to my quiet little paradise over on Banks Peninsula. How much work have you put in to make this whole event run smoothly? Oh, I didn't pay to think about that, um, especially when the mortgage is due. But, yeah, it's, we're talking weeks to try and make this happen with meetings, travel, working bees, preparation, uh, nowadays health and safety training. It's, it's a lot of work has to go into it behind the scenes and we hope that we can put on three great days at the NZ Ag Show uh, and we can put on a great show for the public but when they think it looks easy that's when we know we've done our job right. Now um, in front of us are what about 400 Corridale sheep and these will be used for the wool handling events today. Yep and uh, then they'll be shipped back up to Marble Point tomorrow and once we've finished our wool handling competition this afternoon, we will move into a couple of shearing events for our evening programme, and then, yeah, we'll uh, crank into our shearing at 8am tomorrow morning. Mm. Have you got some of the top wool handlers from around the country here? We've got current New Zealand team members uh, will be competing today, and then there'll be others that are trying to make it to that New Zealand team level. It's part of a circuit of points, so the top wall handlers will be competing and everyone's vying for that bragging rights and also for the competition points that accumulate throughout the season. What does this show mean to you? To me, it's the biggest show that I go to each year. It's the most amount of work, but we just want people to see what a great industry it is and the product that we're taking off the sheep for the farmers. We just can't do enough to try and promote it. And it's just the chance to be able to bring what we do into the city for the people to see is just amazing. Yesterday I was doing demonstrations for school kids and um, people that were moving through the show quietly and they had the opportunity to come up and to actually touch a shorn sheep and to see the, the young kids' faces when they touch a warm, breathing sheep after it's been shorn, it's um, incredibly satisfying. What a great way to bridge that urban-rural divide. Well, and the other thing too is that we're really fighting against a stigma with some of these peoples and organisations that are portraying the fact that wool is a negative product, that it is bad, and they even perpetrating the myth that an animal has to be killed for its wool to be removed, which is just a complete fabrication because it's the most sustainable product we can imagine. We give them a haircut every 6 to 12 months, they grow it again, and you've got a great product to work with. This pavilion is not only for sheep. What other animals can we see around us? Oh, you can hear all sorts. There's the goats. They like to make a fair racket, especially the young ones. The pigs, they get snuffling and snorting and grunting and honking. Uh, further on down, you've got the sheep and the chickens. It's, and then behind us, you've got some, some of the biggest chunks of beef I've seen walking around for a day or two. And everyone just, it's a great opportunity for the best of the best to come in and show the city what the country just does every day. My name's Lee George and I'm from Tegwiti. 
Lee is competing in the senior grade of the wool handling competition. I thought I'd just come down and give it a go. Never done a full wool show before, so... Yeah, how did it go today? Not very well. <laughs> but I gave it a go and I enjoyed it. I just got flustered, overthought about everything, started putting stuff in the wrong bins. <laughs> it's quite hard when there are people watching because there's, well, there's probably 50 or 60 people there. Yep, well, that's pretty nerve-wracking. Do you work as a wool handler full-time? Just part-time because I'm a mum as well, so yeah. What do you love about it? Everything. The industry, the people, the travelling, the places you can go. Yeah, just meeting new people and like the industry can take you overseas, you know, you can go to Australia, you can go to the UK, you know, France, yeah. Do you get paid well being a wool handler? I reckon we get paid well, yeah. yeah. So for the Rouseys, for the shed hands and the pressers, we get paid hourly or by um, bail weight for the presser, depending on where you are, and the shearer gets paid per sheet. And did you come down here with quite a few other people? Um, just my daughter and my son-in-law and my baby. Yeah, we come through from Miffin. We've been staying in Miffin. Well, I said earlier, some of the very best wall handlers in the world, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Joel Hinari, and I'm, I'm originally from Gisborne in the North Island, but I currently reside in Motueka, Nelson, and I'm here at the Canterbury A&P show for the shearing and wool handling champs, in particular the open wool handling contest that's been held here today. Yes. Is this a big event on the wool handling circuit? This is. This is considered as a major wool handling title. And uh, so, you know, this is one of the big ones like Golden Shears and um, thank you at Alexandra Marino. She's those big titles like that and Christchurch is right amongst it. Have you won here before? I have. I've been fortunate that I've won it six times, this Open title, so the last two years, and, and so, yeah. And how did it go today? You seemed to uh, get the job done quite quickly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty wrapped with how I performed this morning, and once the results come out, uh, you know, when the judges have made their final marks, then we'll be able to see yeah. how I got on, whether I get into the semi-final. What are you judged on? So you're judged on how well you prepare the wool as well as keeping up with the shearer and then all the wool that you separate. So the wool buyer wants the nice white wool, that's where the money is and anything that doesn't match that needs to come away. There's the least valued wool or inferior wool types, processing wool faults is what we call them. Yes, and how long have you been in this industry? Well, I started competing when I was 12 and I'm now 32, so I've been in the open probably competing for 16 years. Are you working full-time as a wool handler? No, I haven't worked in the shearing industry for five years. I'm a stay-at-home solo dad and with three young boys, and that's my full-time job. He's pretty much done a dust there, ladies and gentlemen. Alpaca breeder Anne Rogers is president of the Canterbury A&P Association. She's only the second woman president in 160 years. How are things going? Things are going really well. We had a pretty good crowd for a Wednesday yesterday, despite the fact that it was quite cold and windy. We have just come into the wool zone, which is part of the Livestock Pavilion and you've been instrumental in really pushing for this haven't you? Yes I have been trying to get this idea floated for about three or four years now and finally this year I was able to make it come to pass and um, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with it. And this used to be the what the city farmyard where the children used yes. to be able to pet the, uh, the smaller animals yes, but yes. it makes much more sense having the wool zone right beside the oh, sheep. Absolutely, because the it's sort of, they can walk through the wool zone, uh, progress through the sheep, the live sheep pens, and then out across to the city farmyard. And also over there, we've got sheep milking and use lemon. As people wander through the wool zone exhibit, they learn about the attributes of wool and what can be made from it. This is the area where we sort of lose the world behind and we start to focus on, on wool. So here we've got the start, the soil, the grass, how the sheep start to produce their wool. How would you describe what we can see? Oh, look, on a pallet is a great big one metre square, very deep <laughs> section of soil with a lovely 
lush grass growing up from it with a mixed seed plant. It's like a big bite of the earth that's been transported into the livestock pavilion. Yes, it is. There's a little bit of coxfoot in there, clover, ryegrass. Why did you want this wool zone to become a feature of the show? Because of the importance of wool to all our local growers and our national growers. It's the most renewable, sustainable fibre in the world and we need to be applauding that and we need to be recognising that and we need to be able to educate people into all the ways that they can use wool in their lives from wool mat for weed prevention, for insulation, for cosmetics, for shoes, for somebody that's making a plastic alternative handle for knives. Beautiful band-aids and um, dressing material and there's just so many ways that we can use wool and support our economy. I saw some kayaks just before. What are they doing in the wool zone? Well, they're made of wool. And so this is the technology that's rapidly evolving now to utilise this marvellous product. Right beside us is a spinner and a weaver. Yes, yes. And a filter over the back there. So this really is quite an interactive area. It is. It's very interactive. So if we come back through, we've got different retail sites in here where people can also see the different things that are available. Uh, We've got um, the Grumpy Merino, we've got Bow and Arrow, we've got Laura and Flock. And these are all local companies that that use wool in their products? Yes, fantastic. So look at this marvellous display of wool fleeces here. Now the biggest area in the wool zone here is the display of fleeces in competition. Now what sort of fleeces are these? Well we've got crossbred wools and we've got merino wools. One of the things that you see when you come to see this competition is that the scoring sheets for each fleece are there so you can see how fine they were, you can see why that fleece has won this competition, where it's placed, if it's second or third, what was the difference, was it finer, did it have more vegetation in it, what was the structure of the fleece, so it's quite good for people to be able to see that so get a bit of an idea, well how how do they know which fleece is better than that fleece? And you are looking at the Supreme Champion Fleece. Tell me about this. A big deal with 150 fleeces here. It's, it's a really big deal. It's a Corridale fleece uh, and it's come from a ewe and it belongs to K.A. Gilbert. What does it mean for people to win a Supreme Award? Oh, huge, huge. It's a, it's a great mana, it's great for your business, but it's also a great personal achievement. Yeah. Right next to the wool zone, Paul Ensor has some sheep in the commercial hoggett competition. So this is a new competition this year where you enter four weather hoggets and you have four fleeces as well. So they judge the sheep on their own and then they judge the fleeces and then they also, um, the sheep will get processed and they'll judge the carcass as well. So it's about showing the all-round value of what a merino animal can produce. The whole process. And how have you done? Because I can see a ribbon there. Yeah, it's a a red one, which is a good sign because that means we came first, so we're very stoked about that. These are just normal farm sheep. They're not any pampered sheep at all. They're just straight in off off the paddock and into the the show to show people how they can perform. So they came first in the animal section? Yeah, so they came first in what they're calling the animal excellence section of it and they've also been muscle scanned as well to see how, how much muscle they have on them. You must be quite happy about that. Yeah, we're thrilled to take out that in the first year of that competition, so yeah, no, it's very exciting. And um, right behind the sheep is a table with Glenann Station written above it and this is where the fleeces are. Yeah, so part of the competition you have to display four fleeces that are representative of the flock. So these were shorn back in August, so we've put them aside and then we bring them along and line them up next to the sheep. So it's good to see the whole sort of pasture to fibre sort of thing go all the way through. And what happens to your wool? So our wool, we've got our own wee wool business we diversified into, so we sell hemp and merino products and a product called Hemprino. So that gets uh, made into yarn up in Wellington and knitted in Tauranga. Mm. And what's been happening on a farm recently? Um, so we've just come through quite a busy period of tailing and uh, sowing winter feed crops and things as well, so plenty going on. Yes, yes, but nice to get a break and come to the show. Yeah, great to get to the show and catch up with old friends and yeah, yeah, no, it's always a good few days out. But just uh, how fortunate we have been to have Robson 
waste management as our sponsors on the uh, cattle lawn. Uh, they've gone above and beyond as far as we're concerned. They've been great hosts. On the other side of the busy pavilion, several rows of crossbred sheep are on display. Leaning over one of the sheep pens is a farmer and veteran Corridale breeder from North Canterbury. My name is David Sidey, but everyone knows me by my nickname of Doc, D-O-C. Doc Sidey. How long have you been coming to the show here? I first came in 1954 for a day, and then my father bought me for three, all three days of the next four shows, and I went to boarding school, and I came here one day of those three years. But I haven't missed a day since, so this for me is day 205 on the showground. What's happening here today? This is where yesterday was judging day where we provided an, in our section we provided about eight classes for either sex and for various age groups. We're looking at ewes rearing lambs here which is the production side of things. Um, we're looking at ram hoggets here which are the future. This is more of a breed display than an exhibitor display because we want to show the public what we've got between five different exhibitors which is our lowest ever in my lifetime. I've been to the show when there was 359 Corridales here in 1959. Now we've got 50, and that's, that's a fall-off of, of showing sheep and not many young people coming through the system that are keen on the, all the time and effort. And this is looked upon as being a little bit false in most farming because you've got to have sheep in the peak of condition to be competitive, and that's the fault of the system. That's a bit sad, isn't it, that, that there's sad. been such a drop-off? Yeah, I'm, I'm a traditionalist, I suppose you say, and, and it's probably what you might call a family disease that I'm still <laughs> in it, but I, I enjoy the people part of it more than anything, regardless of what breed they're in. Yes. Now, and um, what's the standard of sheep like this year here at the show? Uh, it's, I would say very good, but whilst... I'll explain that by saying that when I judged the ram hoggets class here, I stood aside from being an exhibitor in the ram hoggets, and I judged 82, and I can still remember the top 10 quite vividly in my head of what they looked like, and I can remember the demonstration I gave on them. Now, yesterday, we had the top eight out, and I would think they'd hold their own very good, very well, I should say, with the top 10 of 1988. So that's, that's a good sign. Yeah, it is a good sign, and this ewe over here is the, the classic of what a, a sheep breed stands for. She's uh, born in 2017, and this is her fifth set of twins. She's never had anything else, but she's basically from the paddock, and she's well proven at home. She was never shown when she was young or mollycoddled. She's all in big mob sizes, and, and the milking ability is very good. She is here with her two lambs, who yeah. are quite plump. Yeah, the ram lamb, which is this guy sitting down here, has got a lot of potential, I think. Yes. When they're out yesterday, I think he's probably, he might be the most valuable lamb that's here in our section for, for potential. We are walking down towards your best, best looking sheep. Best exhibit, I think, yeah. This ram got second in a very strong class of five rams. He was... We thought when we left home that this was our great hope and my experience, I, I would rate this sheep because he's such a good natural doer as being in the top five rams I can remember being born at home. He's a big boy. He's a big boy and he's done it naturally. He's never had a pickle of grain or a, a sheep nut in his life. Beautiful clear head, nice soft texture to him which is an indicator of purity and strong bone and guts. And you've got your hand under his jaw now, and he's very relaxed. Yeah, he, he came here last year and won a class of about 23, but um, he was beaten by a ram that had superior wool type. Yes, how heavy would he be? Uh, he'll be about 120 kilos, maybe even more. And the lambs look as though they're very like this fella. They're, they're very strong and gutsy, and yes. I think that's a, probably the most valuable asset you get in an animal. How many lambs... Can he sire in one season? We put this ram to 92 two-tooth ewes, and not all two-tooth ewes are easy to get in lamb, but in 34 days he had 90 of them in lamb, which is quite exceptional. So we'll have about 130 lambs by him, and we'll be going for even more next year because now they're born, he's proven himself. He's very productive. Yeah, we wouldn't sell him to anybody because he's very valuable to us for at least the next couple of years, and then in, in the way of progress, you'd hope perhaps that you might get something with a slightly thicker staple, but the interesting thing is he's, he's so heavy-boned and grunty that it's very hard to get soft wool 
to go with it, and this ram is soft-walled. Oh, now you are looking at his wall now, yeah. and um, under the darker exterior, it's beautifully whitey-yellow inside, isn't it? Look at that yeah. staple. Strong bone often leads to harsher wool in your hand, but this is a good, good soft wool. The ram that's beaten him is very pure in the wool, and that's been the judge's difference yeah. between the two. And lastly, Doc, can you tell me what you love about sheep? I'm oh, brought up to it, genetically brought up to it. Um, I know I'm three-quarter Scotch, and they usually, if you, you take a history of all the old stations in New Zealand, it was the Scotch shepherds that made it. And I would say that in my particular case, my great-grandfather was in boots and all, and a bit to do with founding the Corridale breed, and we've followed that kind of tradition, you know. And you've been farming all your life? Yeah, I have been. I've, uh, I live in the same house that I was born into, so I came in the front door and <laughs> a bassinet, and I hope to go out of it in the wooden box. <laughs> that was sheep breeder Doc Sidey. Cosmo was also talking to Ann Rogers, James Dwyer, Lee George, Paul Ensor and Joel Hinare, who won the New Zealand Corridales Open Wool Handling Championship for the seventh time. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much for joining us on Country Life. Now, don't forget, do email us with your feedback or story ideas. Uh, send us an email to country at rnz.co.nz. And you can also head to our webpage for photos of the stories you've heard today and more information and stories there too. Kia pai to wiki. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.